increase. And you're, you're right, retail, retail investors have had a big impact on the market over the last few months. Will they continue? Um, it depends, I guess, how the performance of the market goes. Um, they've probably got a shock in the last couple of weeks. Toby, have a great weekend, and thank you very much. That's Toby Lawson, Head of Global Markets at the City General Australia. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. US stock index futures have rebounded a little in Asian trading. They're up about 04 0.5%. So that's helping Asian markets also rebound off their lows. Down in Australia, the SX200 uh, is down about 0.9%. The K225 in Japan is flat. The Cosby in South Korea is off a third of a percent. Uh, looks like the Hang Seng is going to lose about 50 points at the open. So the opening level for the index around about 24,230 when trading gets going this morning. And in the commodities markets, not an awful lot, uh, lot of movement. Brent crude oil trading at $40.08 a barrel, and gold is at $1,948 an ounce. In the currency markets, uh, also quiet this morning. The US dollar's at 106.1 Japanese yen. Uh, the British pound, which took a real pounding last night, is at $1.28 against the US dollar this morning. Thank you very much for listening this week. Do please join me again on Monday morning at 8 o'clock for Money Talk. In the meantime, have a great weekend. Do stay tuned for Back Chats with Hugh Chiverton and Andrew Work in just one moment. The weather forecast, mainly cloudy with a few showers and isolated thunderstorms in the morning. There is a thunderstorm warning in force right now. It's going to be hot with sunny intervals during the day and a maximum temperature of about 32 degrees. The outlook is for occasional rain and a few thunderstorms during the weekend to early next week. And then the weather will improve midweek next week. It's 28 degrees right now, 80% relative humidity. It's coming up to 8.32. Samantha Butler has the half-hour news. The Securities and Futures Commission has declined to comment after police yesterday arrested 15 people for allegedly manipulating the share price of Next Digital when its founder Jimmy Lai was arrested on August the 10th under the national security law. Activist investor David Webb, a former director of the Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing, says it's rather unusual for police to take the lead on allegations of market manipulation, which is usually handled by the SFC. It was rather entertaining to hear the police say they're not even sure whether anyone was misled by what was happening and it might be quite difficult for them to make their case. In my view, no one should expect a signal from what other people are doing in the market. Each investor needs to make their own decision, even if they know that what they're doing is betting on the greater fool to pay more for the stock than they do. That happens all the time in all sorts of stocks. And to Microsoft says it's detected and thwarted a series of cyber attacks from China, Russia and Iran, which have targeted November's U.S. presidential election. Here's the BBC's Gordon Carrera. Microsoft says it detected cyber attacks from Chinese hackers targeting people associated with Joe Biden's campaign, while hackers from Iran attacked personal accounts of Donald Trump's team. The company says it detected the attempts to break into accounts and does not believe they were successful. It also says a group it calls Strontium has been seen trying to hack into more than 200 organisations. These hackers are also known as Fancy Bear and are linked to the GRU, Russian Military Intelligence which was alleged to be behind interference in the 2016 presidential election. Citigroup in the United States has become the first major Wall Street bank to appoint a woman as chief executive. Jane Fraser, who's currently president of the group and leads its consumer banking operation, will take up her new role next year. Here's the BBC's Andrew Walker. 
Finance has long had a reputation as a male-dominated industry. One obvious indication of that is the fact that there's never been a woman leading one of the major US banks. Jane Fraser will be the first to break that pattern when she takes charge at Citigroup. Outside the US, it is also very unusual. Alison Rose is chief executive of the NatWest Group in Britain, and in Spain, Anna Moutin is Sanders' executive chairman. That is the word used by the bank, though not its chief executive. There have been more women in charge at central banks, which are public sector institutions, notably Christine Lagarde in the Eurozone and previously Janet Yellen at the US Federal Reserve. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Hugh Chewett and your co-host today, Andrew Work. Andrew, good morning to you. Good morning, Hugh. Today we're talking about wildlife numbers in freefall. The WWF says population sizes of mammals, birds, fish, amphibians and reptiles have fallen by an average of 68% in fewer than 50 years. This means globally more than two-thirds of these animal numbers have been lost. The organization's Living Planet reports says farming and deforestation are two of the major causes, while overfishing is a big problem for life in the ocean and in fresh waters. What are the implications of this? What can we as individuals do to stop the situation from getting worse? Land use for food is the main culprit. Do we have to change the way and what we produce and eat? And for biodiversity in Hong Kong, what are the threats? Uh, give us a call with your thoughts, your questions and comments. You can email backchat at rthk.hk. You can call us on 233-88266. You can go to our Facebook page. And between 9.15 and 9.30, we're talking about the conservation of some historic buildings in Central District, including the uh, Pedder Building, uh, newly made uh, Grade 1, and also what's happening with the uh, Wingwood Grocery Store on Wellington Street. So uh, architectural conservation coming up later in the programme. Uh, let's uh, go to our first topic now. We're joined by Dr David Olson, Director of Conservation at WWF Hong Kong, and Dr Michelle Law, who's a Department of Biology Lecturer at the Baptist University. Dr Olson, uh, David Olson, good morning to you and thanks for, for joining us. T can you introduce this report then? What, what, uh, we, we've heard this sort of a headline story that nearly 70% of, uh, of animal numbers uh, 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 have died out in the last uh, 50 years. Uh, what, what else is in the report? Tell us about it. Yeah, this, this is not a happy report. It's a confirmation that uh, conservationists and wildlife specialists have been um, noting that there's been catastrophic wildlife declines over the last few decades. And what's extraordinary about this report is that it really reflects a long-term, several decades-old monitoring of wildlife populations from many different parts of the world, many different ecosystems, many different types of animals. So it really gives us confidence that what we're seeing is a real pattern of loss. Um, it is disconcerting. 68% uh, of the, the 21,000 populations of 4,000 or so species being monitored are in, in sharp decline and, in, in the oceans, land, and freshwater. Okay, and can you give us a little bit of a sense of, like, how do you measure that? That just sounds like a massive undertaking, measuring that, the, you know, that many species uh, over that long period of time. Um, can you explain to us, like, how the sampling is undertaken and, and uh, you know, where, where there's guesswork in there and, you know, how you, how you arrive at, at, at these numbers? 
Well, they work closely with a number of scientists and other conservation bodies like the IUCN around the world who do monitor these species. So really the effort is to try to bring together all this data in a standardized and complementary way so that we can say these trends, um, we have confidence in what we're seeing. Um, one thing about this, about this report is that it is starting to um, have a, a broader look than just the loss of population numbers. It's looking at habitat loss and the loss of ecosystem processes as well, which are similarly in decline. Okay, and I noticed the focus studies, the, the study focuses on uh, the chordata, right? The uh, Anything with a backbone, I think that's fair to say for this one. Um, and, and how do you extrapolate that to other species into the broader biodiversity picture you know what what is you know do we just look at these and that just tells us about them or does that tell us about something happening in the broader uh the broader ecosystem well we know that that there's major habitat loss in a number of different types of ecosystems around the world uh, tropical forests um, certain kinds of dry forests savannas and grasslands and marine systems like coral reefs are all in decline and are degrading we do know that there are substantial losses in invertebrates um, throughout and plant species. Um, invertebrates in particular are the most diverse group of organisms. And when you lose tropical forest, you lose species. So some of the best estimates we have are 100 species a day are going extinct when you consider the invertebrates. We're also seeing a loss of, uh, of pollinators, of important predators of larger animals as well. So we're really seeing an unraveling of whole, uh, what we call assemblages of species and ecosystems in many different parts of the world. And it's a great concern because our survival depends upon having healthy natural ecosystems. And what's the cause? Well, as you mentioned earlier, habitat loss is a major cause. There's a lot of um, terrestrial ecosystems being lost, natural habitats being lost because of agricultural expansion, soybeans in Brazil, soybean expansion in Bolivia and Mozambique. Uh, we're seeing roads being punched into the last tropical forest with settlements coming in and, and uh, deforestation in these areas. So really habitat loss is a major driver. A second major driver is the wildlife trade for certain groups of animals where we're seeing is vacuuming of of uh, wildlife from many different ecosystems around the world. The wildlife trade is very, very high volumes. It impacts many different species, and it, it's having a, a major impact. On top of that, we have uh, we have climate change, which is changing the conditions for uh, that species require to, to live. So we're seeing shifts, and we're seeing declines associated with that. Okay, we've also got Dr. Michelle Law on the line. Uh, Dr. Law, you know, you, were, you, were you involved in this study at all, or you've had a close look at it? What's your, what are your takeaways from this? Um, actually, I'm very happy to see the report that um, established by at the WWF. And uh, because uh, my research is looking at the soil diversity, and I'm really happy that they do have one of the chapters to talk about the soil biodiversity. Um, because the, the biofauna that are living on the soil, they are really important to support our ecosystem. And then they also provide quite a lot of ecosystem services for us, just like um, the providing the food, and then they also provide the habitat to um, amend the soil properties. 
So actually, it is very important to have this kind of scientific uh, study on all over the world to see what would be the diversity happened to us. Yeah. So, and uh, I think this is a very important message to alarm all of the people that uh, we are experiencing the loss of biodiversity, and it can be irreversible. Just like we may suffer from that, and it also affect our human survival. So I think um, this point is very uh, important to know that. So, but what's the connection? I mean, this study looks almost entirely at vertebrates uh, and things with backbones. They don't get that far. They don't get that deep into the earth. You know, they make some little burrows here and there. There might be the occasional mole cruising around, but most of what lives under the uh, the surface of the earth are non vertebrates. I mean, uh, does it really address? you know, what's happening on that front in a meaningful way? Or is there is there more that could be done if they expanded the study beyond uh, vertebrates? Yeah, 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 that's true. Um, and this is also the reason why we also need to pay attention to those thoughts about diversity. Because uh, in the academia, most of the research effort we just put on the above ground about diversity. So uh, in this report, they also uh, evaluate the the biodiversity loss of the birds, of the butterfly, but they um, still less attention was paid to the soil animals. So uh, I think, but then, I, I think it's still a very good point to point out that we still have some uh, knowledge gap in terms of biodiversity. Mm. Okay, and yeah, what, what, what should we be looking at for, like how you measure biodiversity under the ground? Um, actually, we will evaluate uh, the species uh, richness and also how with the species uh, distribution that we can find in the soil system. Yeah, but how? Then, how, how do I, you do that? Do you just take a great big chunk of dirt and then start picking around to see what you can find and count count a bit of this, a bit of that? Yes, yes, yes. We, we do have a um, systematic uh, sampling method. So we will randomly pick up the site and then we put the gold quadrat and we dig the soil and then we can count what kind of animals that are inside the soil. And for the microbes in soil, that we can also do some um, soil analysis, so we can attract those microbes from the soil particles and then to see uh, what species or how with the uh, abundance that are included in this uh, soil sample. Okay. Uh, David Olson, what's the solution in terms of, of uh, uh, like food production? Uh, if this land is being lost for production of soybeans, for example, that's not. It's not being used for you know beef for McDonald's or something like that. It's being used for for, for soybeans. So shifting to <laughs> shifting to a plant based food, uh, plant based diet might not make that much difference. Well, you know, how should we approach this? Should we be doing more intensive farming? Should we be doing sort of factory farming and hydroponics and sort of industrialize it like that rather than sprawling uh, in this way? Um, yeah, there's there's real challenges in in what you're suggesting, but that is the way forward. I think the primary uh, and immediate goal is to stop the loss of, the further loss of natural habitats to, to get more agricultural lands. And in, in order to feed the world, we're going to have to have, as you say, more intensive farming, more sustainable approaches to farming, and, and different kinds of uh, food sourcing and, and regulatory approaches to ensuring that our food production is sustainable and not causing further damage to the natural world. So there's some real challenges here, but there are good solutions out there, and they are being implemented in some areas, but 
the immediate goal is to try to reduce the loss, the further loss of natural habitats um, in different parts of the world, especially on these deforestation fronts that we're seeing. Um, and we're also seeing a lot of uh, expansion of agricultural products that aren't necessarily that critical for human survival, like palm oil and so on, which has really taken a toll on the forests of Southeast Asia and increasingly in South America and in Africa. So there are, there are solutions, but it's going to take some real leadership on the part of the, the commercial sector and, and governments as well. And, of course, a lot of the countries you mentioned are developing countries. They're relatively poor, and they see an opportunity. There's an opportunity here to make money. They, you know, they've got the land, and they, they could grow stuff. It's hard to persuade people to stay poor. Well, absolutely. You know, the, the solutions that are being proposed are, are not going to be taking food out of local people's mouths. A lot of the challenges we're seeing are industrial um, farming, which is um, supporting like, as you said, grain for cattle and, and so on um, elsewhere. So there needs to be a readjustment of the way we, we grow food and we source uh, commodities. And that it has to happen in, in the near future because the catastrophic declines of habitat loss, um, unraveling of ecosystems and loss of species um, are, are, are really an, an alarming at this point. So we have just a few decades. So we really need some leadership on the part of the private sector and governments to, to understand there's a very serious problem of our world unraveling right now, our support system, and yeah, that's major things need to be done. Yeah, but that's not going to happen, is it? I mean, people, you know, we're, we're finding more extravagant, more ridiculous ways to waste more and more food every day, and unless there's a global famine that hits every person, like COVID has hit every economy in the world, um, there's no pressure for change. I mean, COVID is going to force change because it's global. But food, eh, you know, <laughs> like we, we, we waste. What is it, more than a third of food is wasted before it ever gets to consumption? Of course, there is this big initiative now in, in uh, the mainland, uh, in China, to reduce food waste. To reduce food waste, yeah. I mean, but I, the, the, it just doesn't seem like the pressure is there in the way that we've had, you know, we had an oil shock change the way in the 70s that we consumed energy, and uh, the COVID is going to change the way that we behave. But, I mean, food, it just keeps getting worse. <laughs> yeah, you're right, there may be that change will occur after crises, but I think we know we have solutions in mind and how to approach things, and we're trying to get the word out that there is a better way to find a balance with our planet, and we hope that the leadership in, in the private sector will pay close attention to this, because all of our survival is dependent upon it. If people go hungry, there will be a lot of problems around the world. And, yeah. uh, so making sure nature is healthy is Dr. Law, is the answer to some extent kind of letting nature do its thing and then we could, uh, we could, you know, sort of move food production indoors, as it were, for hydroponics or whatever, industrialise it, increase the intensity, but take less space uh, and then have large areas um, that are just left to themselves, uh, you know, as we do more or less in Hong Kong with the, with the country park. So build intensively in one place and then leave the rest alone Is that uh, and leave the soil alone in those other places. Is that the... Is that a right approach? <laughs> um, maybe, yeah, I would say, because in Hong Kong we are one out of our land. And uh, for hydroponic uh, agriculture activities, it really um, can save the land and then we can just uh, have an intensive production from a very tiny 
space. Um, but then at the same time, hydroponic agriculture is also required of quite a lot of nutrient and also energy to support. Because um, by putting all the plant crops in a building, so we need to provide the electricity, we need to provide the sunlight for them. So therefore, we use quite a lot of electricity to support the lighting system. And then uh, people also need to set up the water system for that. So uh, that irrigation system that is also we use up quite a lot of fresh water resources. So therefore, I would say if we want to let the light nature to work it out. So hydroponic may be the first priority choice for providing food. But then we may follow or we may prefer the organic farming in Hong Kong. Um, although we don't have much land for the farm, but then we actually can convert the abandoned farmland in Hong Kong and then use them as the organic farm. So we just um, plant the crops in a more environmental friendly way. So we can use the compost and we can um, conserve those soil animals to amend the soil properties in the soil as well. So actually, I think um, this would be the more preferable lateral-based solution to deal with the food problem. But, I mean, it's kind of attractive uh, in, in various ways. But is it is it economical? Can you make... A cheap food for the masses, uh, you know, organically in that way? Um, I would say uh, if we go for the organic farming, so one of the problems is that we cannot have the intensive production of the food because of the farmers spend more time for it, and then they are asking for a high-quality food. But then I think our, actually we can still, we, we need to go for that, yeah, because if we can increase the food security rate in Hong Kong locally, then we can also save the energy. But then for the economical value, if the government, they can put more effort to um, expand the scale of uh, organic farming, so it would be okay, I would say. So they, they can uh, provide more subsidies for those farmers to so just help them to convert the um, conventional farming to the organic one. So I think it would be a maybe a solution for that. So when you provide subsidies, you're saying it's not economical. I mean, organic, you know, for all its virtues, organic is, has a lot of wastage because it doesn't last as long. Um, you know, there's, there's, you know, it's as you said, it's not as intensive, so you have to use more land to get the same output. The plants don't grow as fast. I mean, uh, it, it's not if you got to subsidize it, it's definitely not economical. I mean, for, for all its virtues, there are costs. So I want to come back um, to the to the biodiversity uh, aspect of this, um, Dr. Olson. In the report, you know, in 2017, you started using the term "bending the curve." You guys were uh, way out in front. You know, now it's flattened the curve for COVID, but you guys were bending the curve. Um, if, are we going to run out of animals to kill? I mean, is the curve going to is the curve going to flatten out for for this rate of uh, biodiversity reduction? Because we just run out of species to eliminate until we're down to, you know, those species that can live in and around human activity, you know, urban and agricultural uh, areas? Yeah, let's, let's hope we never get to that point. Um, <laughs> it's pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're heading that way. I, when you look at the larger animals, the larger vertebrates around the world, both on land and in, in fresh water, there's been a, a massive defaunation, we call it, uh, a loss of uh, megafauna. Mm -hmm. And so that's, th those are the most sensitive species to go first. They're big, people like to hunt them for food, and they're dangerous, and uh, 
we're seeing a, a global loss of megafauna. Yeah, but there are... They're also they're also cuddly and lovable. The megafauna; those are the ones that the WWF raises money off of. Give, give us some big ticket uh, animals that are either that have been have gone extinct over the last twenty or thirty years that people would recognize, uh, or or and then maybe some that are on the verge of extinction that we would know. Well, the South China tiger is extinct in the wild. Mm. Hardly now. That that was in Hong Kong up to nineteen forties. The last one was seen in Hong Kong. I think um, I think I've seen the head of the last one at the police museum. Yeah, there, there's a there's a few specimens around, but uh, throughout their range, the, the South China tiger is a subspecies of tiger, but it was distinct, mm-hmm. and uh, it it was a, a major part of the fauna here. It was a top predator on land here yep. in, in southern China. Um, it's it's a species that doesn't do well with a lot of people around. There's conflict occurs, and it's dangerous for people and dangerous for tigers. So. Um, and when people hunt their prey, too, that's one of the problems with tigers around the world right now is the loss of their prey because of widespread hunting and snaring. Uh, they don't have anything to eat. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's tough for a larger animal. Yeah. Uh, but we're seeing losses of, of populations and species, not just in the forest, but also in the marine systems. The over-harvesting of sharks are in a free fall. Sharks and rays are declining throughout the world, mm-hmm. um, largely because of bycatch, but also for because of shark fin trade. Of course. So we're, we're very concerned about that group. Yeah, your report's got a picture of visit. I, I don't know if it's a manatee, a dugong, or uh, a sea cow here, but it's uh, it's uh, very charismatic. They call it charismatic megafauna. But what, So we got the tiger. What, what else should we worry about? Tigers, sharks, dolphins? Well, we, we have a program right now dolphins. on the local uh, Chinese white dolphin population. That they, These are tough dolphins. They live in one of the most uh, urban areas on the planet, but they're, <laughs> yeah. they're, they're still here. However, they're declining very, very fast. And uh, we just came out with an emergency conservation action proposal working uh, throughout the whole region on what can be done to set aside some areas for these animals to have a little respite where you don't have a lot of boat traffic. And uh, we're hoping the Hong Kong government looks carefully at those recommendations. Um, now's the time to act, though. They're, they're declining very rapidly. They're faced with boat strikes, with noise pollution underwater, with toxins. Um, so they have a tough road. But I think if we can implement some of these things, that will give them a chance to rebound. Yeah, living in subdivided flats, cage homes, political turmoil, the dolphins, you know, the Hong Kong dolphins have it very tough. I mean. <laughs> uh, David Olson, is the vision then to sort of have areas of wilderness, areas that are completely untouched, or do you think that they should be managed, they should be more like sort of country parks or something like that, where, you know, you humans are, are striving to sort of keep a balance and, and, and so on? I, you know, what, how do you see the future? That's, that's the right approach, is to have zoning of the planet. Certain kinds of activities can go on in this place and uh, in this place and so on. But right now, what we're seeing is a, a juggernaut of uh, degradation and loss of natural habitats around the planet, and that this is the problem. We need Hong Kong's quite exceptional in that 40% of the of the area is uh, in, in country parks, and it is regrowing. It, it is restoring, and we're starting to see some bird species that were lost, moved back in, and so on. But this is really an, an exception around the world. Um, in the marine areas of Hong Kong, we do believe that uh, an expanded marine protected area system is what's necessary to stabilize and to restore the marine wealth around here. And
and uh, the AFCD is looking at this, but uh, there needs to be a more aggressive uh, expansion of this with uh, no take areas, no fishing areas, which we know from other areas around the world are essential for recovery of fish population. This is where people in Hong Kong might be a little confused. Do we still have a fishing industry in Hong Kong, or did the government buy everybody out and, and you know buy all their boats off them and finally put, a, put that to rest? There, there is still some fishing. It is reduced, of course. Yeah. But there's also recreational fishing, which is you know, an important pastime. Sure. And people enjoy it. But uh, with, uh, with zoning in, in the marine system around here, it, it can help restore the fisheries. We, we know this from other parts of the world where communities have and government have worked together to put in some no-take zones within marine protected areas throughout a coastline and throughout coastal waters, and it really has helped rebound fisheries and biodiversity. And it's also good for diving and yeah. ecotourism. Yeah, I hear, I hear in Hong Kong's pretty weak on the enforcement of that. I know people who live up in Hoi Ha, and it's supposedly a protected area up there, and they say there are just people, like, you know, plundering the area relentlessly, and they put in the call to the AFCD, and, like, nothing happens. It's very tough. Yeah, but the, I, I've heard similar things, but these are things that can be, um, can be changed pretty quickly with, with uh, commitment and resources, and, uh, and we're hoping that in the next few years we'll have, a, we'll have some real progress in this area okay well we've got some interesting comments uh, in uh, emails and on uh, facebook that's backchat on rthk radio 3 and you can email backchat at rthk.hk uh, with your comments which we'll get to after the news at nine we're also going to be talking later in the program about uh, conservation of uh, heritage buildings in central uh with uh, pedder street being put uh, sorry uh, pedder pedder building uh, being put as uh, a grade one, and uh, also problems with uh, uh, keeping the Wing Woo grocery, grocery on uh, Wellington Street uh, uh, safe. The weather before all that, it's going to be mainly cloudy today with a few showers, isolated thunderstorms this morning, hot with sunny tools during the day. There's a thunderstorm warning now, 27 degrees, humidity is at 86%. Direct financial impact than men as a result of the virus. And in the United States, black people report much higher levels of COVID infection in their families than in the white population. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back to this on a Friday morning with Andrew Work and me, Hugh Chiverton. We're talking uh, about uh, wildlife around the world. This is on the back of that report from the uh, WWF, the Worldwide Fund for Nature, uh, which says that uh, population sizes of uh, uh, vertebrates, that's mammals, birds, fish, amphibians, things like that, uh, have fallen nearly 70% in less than 50 years. That means two-thirds of these animal numbers have simply uh, been lost. We're talking about the implications with Dr. Michelle Law from the Department of uh, Biology, uh, lecturer at the uh, Hong Kong Baptist University, and Dr. David Olson, who's Director of Conservation at WWF Hong Kong. Later we're going to be talking about uh, conservation issues uh, uh, concerning uh, buildings uh, in Central, uh, in particular the uh, Pedder Building in Pedder Street, which has now been made Grade 1, what are the implications of that? The uh, the owner wasn't happy about that. Uh, and uh, also problems with the uh, Wingwoo Gracery, uh, that building, uh, old building in uh, Wellington Street, in uh, preserving that. We're going to be talking to a conservationist uh, about that, a spokesperson from the uh, concern group. Uh, if you want to ask questions or, or comments, uh, please join in. To, uh, you can call us on 233-88266. You can email backchat at rthk.hk or you can go to our Facebook page. That's backchat on rthk radio 3. Okay. Uh, 
um, some uh, interesting emails and, and uh, comments uh, following up on aspects of the discussion in the first part of the programme. Uh, Victoria Ann on Facebook says, forget recycling. People can't even put garbage into designated garbage cans in Hong Kong. Garbage everywhere. So many levels need improvement by the government. Single-use plastic and toxic materials like styrofoam need to be phased out. There needs to be more incentive for people who recycle. Help out initiatives such as food composting or toilet paper business using recycled paper. Supermarkets re reduce unnecessary wrapping. Yes, this not just supermarkets, but also includes businesses like our Hong Kong TV Mall. Uh, do you know that in Singapore, when you hire a helper, they need to go through some training, which includes recycling before the employer is given the okay. In Hong Kong, I see so many times helpers just throw out everything for convenience. It also doesn't help when so-called environmental companies charge buildings by weight to take care of their recycling, but was actually busted for taking it to Chung Kwan o to be dumped like regular garbage. Mm. So much the government can add value, and yet they choose to look the other way. That's from uh, Victoria Ann. Thank you very much indeed for that. Uh, one of the things we talked about was the, the loss of, uh, of uh, habitat for, uh, for wildlife, and that uh, uh, planting crops, including soybeans, was a, was a particular problem. Uh, Paul, responding to that, uh, I'm not quite sure what you mean at the beginning there, Paul, but uh, it says two something uh, go to human consumption. Uh, anyway, the point is, Paul says, most goes to feed animals and make fuel. Don't blame human consumption for the destruction of rainforests. Um, Din says, global wildlife destruction. China eventually banned ivory. China and Vietnam and others now need to educate their people to stop believing that animal parts can be used as medicine and legislate to ban their trade and use. That comes uh, from Din. Uh, David Olson, is there any sign of that? You mentioned that uh, trade in, in uh, uh, rare species uh, was uh, also a... Uh, a, a problem and, and you know contributing significantly to the to the destruction of, of, of wildlife. Is there any sense that that's changing? That uh, countries are becoming more aware of that? Well, the the trade in wildlife is increasing. We know Hong Kong alone had more than I think four thousand species being uh, traded through or trafficked through, both legally and illegally. It is a, a major major industry around the world. The wildlife is used for, for food, for traditional medicines, for pets, and, and so on. Um, it, it's a real challenge. And so we're, we're trying to better understand how to tackle this in, in collaboration with government and the private sector. Um, it is having an impact on species around the world. Certain, certain animals are being targeted, like pangolin, like elephants. And this is all illegal but the trade is very profitable and there is a lot of demand for it. Um, but uh, we're, we're trying to get people to become more aware that uh, it is having a, a major impact on, on wildlife populations, driving them to extinction. Uh, Michel Lourke, uh, Dr. Lourke, uh, is there also a kind of self-writing mechanism that, uh, you know, if however sort of polluted an area is and how many animals are lost. If you leave it alone for long enough, the soil will sort itself out, will clean itself, and the animals will return. Um, uh, does that happen as well? Is there hope in that sense? I think it's just, uh, kind of like we need to stop the, the situation first. So uh, just like uh, what we mentioned is about the illegal trading. 
So in Hong Kong, actually, it's a new trend for people that love to keep the um, amazing animals. So they need to keep the rare animals at their homes. So they keep it as pets. So it's also increased the uh, pressure for those uh, illegal trading, and then it's also um, increased the demand for people that going into those rainforests, and then they just caught, they just catch those uh, individuals. So therefore. Uh, First of all, if we want the nature to to rest out, to drift the balance among the ecosystem, so first of all, we need to restrict this kind of behavior, and then we also need to have a better um, living habitat uh, habit, and then to raise out this kind of uh, pressure to the uh, animals. It's kind of funny because you hear about that all the time, but I mean, I don't think I've ever met anybody who's, who has. Uh, I never have I never met anybody who has like an exotic illegal pet. I mean, you'd have to keep it pretty deep under wraps, right? Because it's illegal. Um, actually, for, for because Hong Kong, we have in the Convention of International Trade in endangered species of animals and plants. Mm. So uh, actually, you can apply for a permit, and then um, if you really want to keep the rare animals. But you need to check whether they are lo- are list on the appendix. Mm-hmm. So the appendix actually is based on the um, conservation status of those plants and animals. But then, if um, the status is still stable, so based on status, so you can apply the permit and then you can keep the pet. But then in Hong Kong right now, mm-hmm. we do have the dark market for those rare animals. So if you search on web or you watch along um, the uh, fighting guy at Hong Kong, so actually some of the shopkeepers, they will just sell the illegal the, the illegal pet. Uh, but more importantly is that some of the pet owners, they just not that uh, responsible. Mm-hmm. After they get the animals, they cannot keep it because uh, just like the crocodile, so it just gets bigger and then they just release back to the nature. So it can become an introduced species. And we don't know what would be the negative uh, consequence to that uh, introduced species in the nature because it can be invasive. Okay, And then it would be a matter to the local biodiversity. Yeah, the Australians are fanatic about that on account of having some really destructive uh, species introduced. Um, are we going to? Are we? Yeah, we got some emails there. Want to get to? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, Paul. Paul was talking earlier about uh, uh, soybeans and uh, the uh, how much was used for uh, human consumption, how much was used to, for uh, animals and and for fuel. So that he, he meant to say two uh, percent. So two percent of, of soybeans, according to Paul, uh, is actually directly for for a human uh, consumption. Uh, uh, yeah, but we eat the animals. <laughs> the soybean is used yeah, for animal exactly, feed, yeah, and then we yeah, eat yeah. the animals. So, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so you yeah. could you could make a lot more tofu by not eating the animals, yeah, sure. or by by eating them direct or eating the, the beans directly. Right? There you uh, go. Okay, uh, Paul in uh, uh, Paul says, uh, and I'm not sure what you're getting at, Paul. Is this is this this is a sort of um, uh, dig at Darwin? Is it? Is this something to do with the kinds? Anyway, uh, Paul says, "Hi, back chat. Land use for food is the main culprit." I don't see that in Hong Kong. Places like Hong Kong's wetlands are being eaten up by real estate rather than the introduction of rice paddies. Uh, but why should we worry about any change in the environment? Surely if macroevolution 
if macroevolution is true, then this is a fantastic opportunity for new kinds of creatures to evolve which can overcome these new adverse environmental conditions. Unless, of course, macroevolution isn't possible and our offspring are limited only to the genes that we pass down. But, of course, that's just crazy talk, isn't it? That comes from Paul. Well, we are living in the Anthropocene and... You know, one of the, one of the uh, it, we do go through periods of mass extinctions. Uh, Doctor Olson, I think you'll be with me on this one, and I promised you we were going to use the word Anthropocene on this episode, <laughs> on this show today. Explain what that is. I shouldn't laugh when I say it; it's pretty serious. But it's the idea that mankind has so altered uh, the normal processes of the planet, not not only just in terms of like biomatter, but actually at a geological level, that we have created a new geological era that they're calling the Anthropocene. Anthropo being human beings. So, David, David Olson, is there is there going to can, can humans not, end the Anthropocene era? It's not it's not a terribly radical fringe view these days. It's, no, it's, it's pretty pretty kind of mainstream. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that we are having a massive impact on the planet. It, it, even even now being recognized that you can see it in the geology of the planet, Doctor Olson. I'm pretty spot on with that. Yeah, uh, it is a term that's used to discuss the impacts of of our species on on global biosphere. Yes, and the signature. Uh, archaeological evidence in the future will be a layer of plastic, they say. So we'll see. Yeah. Um, it, we, as a species, we, we are harnessing a lot of the world's productivity. We are made, having major alterations um, to ecosystem processes and habitats. So we're, we're at that point where we are dominating the, the biosphere. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it, what that means is big changes. That means you'll start to see unraveling of certain kinds of uh, ecological processes and the resilience of, of certain systems that we really need. Uh, life will go on, but there could be a lot of hardship associated with these changes. And so what we're trying to do now is find, find a balance um, between what humans need to survive and what nature needs to survive and help provide us a, a, some stability uh, for, for the planet. And there's the question of disease as well. That um, a lot of anim- a lot of uh, diseases come through animals, don't they? Zoonotic diseases, and uh, yeah, we we'll, we'll seem to be encountering them more and more. Well, what, as we push into natural habitats and we start to take wildlife out, people interact with that wildlife, and we encounter new viruses and so on from bats and so on. And so, what happens then is these viruses are opportunistic and they 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 can jump to another species like what happened with the COVID-19 virus and uh, so it, it is it is probable that we will see more uh, types of what we call zoonotic events where where we see pathogens jumping from wildlife species to humans as we see an increase in the wildlife trade and we see further and further destruction of natural ecosystems. So it is a consequence of our very active um, alteration of the planet. Um, We currently are really focusing on the wildlife trade as a health issue as much as a conservation issue because the the current pandemic is strongly, uh, highly likely that it arose from some kind of interactions in, in these wildlife trade chains. Can we finish on a high note? Is anybody doing anything right? Like we hear about massive reforestation in northern China to try and stop the desert. Apparently green cover is increasing in North America and parts of Europe. Um, Is is there any, are there any bright spots that we could look to for examples to follow? 
are a lot of solutions that are in place right now that are out there that just have to be adopted and put into place. But nobody's actually doing it, or is there any way well, we can look for that? Well, there's increasing awareness around the world, with not only within academia, but also within government circles and, and larger organizations, and increasingly in the corporate sector. So we do see on many fronts that there's growing interest, growing recognition, and growing commitment to really make a change. We need some real leadership to step up on, in many sectors to really push through and to do, make the sacrifices that need to happen. I hate to say it, but that's, that sounds like an A for effort, you know, which means nothing's actually getting done. I mean, green belts around London and Toronto, uh, you know, is, you, you can't, you can't point to a single example? You can't point to a single example? Yeah, well, as you said, um, China has a number of new policies which are really focused on, on finding a better balance. And, and they've, they've banned the wildlife trade. They've banned ivory. Hmm. So they've taken the lead in, in many ways. Hopefully other, other governments will follow through. A number of governments around the world have really expanded their protected area system in the ocean. Mm -hmm. So we do see uh, bright spots in many places that can uh, set examples for others to follow. Okay. Comment from Chris, uh, who says, Very sad to have my feelings confirmed regarding wildlife loss. I've lived on Lama Island for 40 years now, and the decline is obvious. We used to get thousands of cicadas in the trees, but hardly see them now. Last year and this year, I've hardly had any frogs in my pond, no tree spiders, very few snakes. I was hoping that with the pollution being low now, it would get better. And that's from uh, Chris. Thank you very much indeed uh, for that. And many thanks to our guests this morning, to uh, Dr. Uh, Michelle Law from the Department of uh, Biology, a lecturer there at the Baptist University, and Dr. David Olson, who's Director of Conservation at uh, WWF Hong Kong. Uh, Tom, in an email with the subject line, let's work together, says, in 532 AD, people in the world's largest country at that time, the Byzantium Empire, took sides in the blue versus green political divide and in the riots burned down half the city of Constantinople and almost finished off the empire. A few years later, no one was exactly sure what the blue and green camps were fighting about anymore. So in the spirit of cooperation, let's challenge the guests and commentators to say one nice thing about the their opposition and let's try to work together to protect some of the things that work well in Hong Kong including the protection of the environment limits on corruption and Hong Kong's ability to provide efficient public services that, uh, thoughts of Tom thank you very much indeed uh, for that finally today we wanted to turn to the issue of uh, conservation architectural conservation and in particular uh, in central uh, a couple of uh, things going on first of all uh, the news that uh, Pedder building uh, on uh, Pedder Street, the distinctive uh, shop building, a commercial building, uh, uh, has been now given a Grade 1 uh, historic uh, status, uh, although uh, it was uh, opposed by um, the uh, owners, mm. uh, the family, uh, the, the Fock family. They objected. They were worried about various issues, including maintenance costs, but the board went ahead. Uh, and also problems uh, affecting the uh, preservation of the Wing Woo grocery shop uh, in Central uh, which is being now uh, uh, preserved by the uh, Urban Renewal Authority. For comment, we're joined now by uh, Jack Chu, who's a conservationist and spokesperson from the Wingwu Concern Group, and also uh, Christopher DeWolf, who's the managing director of Zalima City Life magazine. Uh, good day to uh, both of you. Uh, June, in an email, says, I'd just like to say how disappointed to hear the reason the Fock family, which owns the uh, Pedder Street building, uh, has no interest in spending any resources to maintain that building. This family has benefited from the rise of wealth of Hong Kong, but is unwilling to return the favour. 
at uh, thoughts of uh, June. Uh, uh, Christopher DeWolf, thanks for thanks for joining us today, and, and thank you very much for the magazine as well. I'm I'm, I'm a big fan. It's a it's a great magazine. It's available uh, online. It's always very interesting. Yeah. Tell, tell us a little bit because you wrote an interesting piece about the about the Peda building. To tell us kind of a little bit about the background of the Peda building. I think people will, will know it, but what's the history? Uh, well, thanks for having me. Um, the Peda building is interesting because it's one of the few uh, buildings of its era left in Central. Um, and it's only had three owners since it was completed. Uh, and in, in that time, since it was completed in 1924, uh, you have other buildings that have been redeveloped uh, three, four, five, even six times. Uh, so it's quite remarkable that it's still standing there. Mm. Um, so it was developed initially by a man named uh, So Se Teng, who was a property developer, leased the land from the government. Uh, this is one of the most prestigious addresses in, in Central. So he hired Palmer and Turner, which was a big-name architecture firm, to design a building. Uh, he developed it. But then in 1925, the economy tanked because of a general strike, uh, and, uh, and he defaulted on his loan repayments. So he was forced to sell it to another developer named Ng Wa. Um, his family held on to the building until 1962 when they sold it to the Fox, uh, who still own it today. And um, uh, if you're talking about the architectural style, it's uh, an example of Edwardian Baroque style, uh, same as the University of Hong Kong's main building, same as uh, Central Station in, in Sydney, the, the Port of Liverpool building in England. Um, and it's a very kind of um, frilly style, uh, lots of or ornamentation. Um, and it's interesting because at, around the time that the Petro building was built in other parts of the world, you were seeing more modern, streamlined uh, examples of architecture. But Hong Kong was, uh, was a bit more conservative, uh, still had this more um, traditional uh, British imperial uh, style of architecture. And so it's, it's, it's very much an example of that right in the heart of Central, mm. and uh, now it's surrounded by buildings that are much newer. What, what difference does the grade one status make? Does that change anything? It, it, uh, basically, it increases the scrutiny. Um, so legally speaking, only uh, declared monuments, declared historic monuments in Hong Kong are actually protected from uh, demolition. Um, and, you know, an example of that would be the former Supreme Court building that is now the Court of Final Appeals that was uh, LegCo for a while. Um, so grade one means there's a lot more scrutiny. Um, there's uh, a lot more pressure, but there's no real protection. I mean, the Fox family could, if they wanted to, knock the whole thing down. Uh, you know, they would still be within their rights to do that. Yeah, I mean, I thought the uh, the email at the top by June was a little unfair. They have no interest in spending any resources. Clearly, they've been maintaining it for 60 years. Yeah? Uh, that's true. That's absolutely true. And, and it's uh, beautiful. And, I mean, I know, it's gorgeous. It's, so, <laughs> it, it's a gorgeous building, uh, and it's all the more remarkable uh, because it's one of the last of its, um, uh, of its generation. But, uh, yeah, the Falk family really keeps their cards close, close to their chest, and uh, I haven't been able to speak to anyone from the family. And even their leasing agent declined an interview when I was writing my article. So, mm. uh, so I, I, I really have no idea what their plans are. I think there the were, sort of the latest incarnation, there were some galleries uh, moving in there, but they seem to be not, obviously, not doing very well in the current environment. So mm. what's, what's in there at the moment? Do you know? One thing I wasn't able to confirm, uh, but which had been told to me, was that a large proportion, maybe even up to 50% of the, the building, is, is currently unoccupied. Um, 
start, starting in the late 2000s, around 2009, there was um, a wave of art galleries uh, that moved in, and, and um, apparently the Falk family actually solicited uh, some of these galleries to come in, uh, like Hanart TZ, uh, Ben Brown, uh, which was the first one to move in, these very well-reputed uh, high-end galleries. And um, a few years ago, there were tons of them, uh, and it was a real kind of epicenter for that really top end of the art market in Hong Kong. But um, the art market began to decline in Hong Kong a couple of years ago, and now with, um, you know, with COVID and everything, uh, it's just too expensive. The rents haven't really been lowered, so a lot of galleries have, have gone to industrial spaces that are much cheaper. This was the home of Shanghai Tang for many years, and then it was a Chippendale. Sorry, Abercrombie & Fitch uh, location. That's the one we're talking about. Where you right? used to work, yeah. Yeah, yeah, when I was, yeah. But I mean, are the, was, the, was, the, is, was the emptying out of it a spur to get it designated a classroom building? Were people afraid they were going to empty it out and demolish it? Uh, that's something I, I uh, wondered myself, but I actually I, I have no idea about that. Um, I, I, I only found out when it was reported today that the, the grading had been upgraded. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I... That's on my mind as well. Okay. So the, the, well, another know. grade one uh, historic building uh, is uh, the Wingwu uh, Grocery Shop. Uh, it's, uh, it's a bit older. It's 120 years old in, in, in Wellington Street. Uh, it, uh, it's being preserved at the moment uh, by the uh, Urban Renewal Authority, but there are some uh, issues which are, are emerging. Jack Chu joins us now, conservationist and spokesperson from the Wingwu Concern Group. Uh, Mr. Chu, good morning to you. T- tell us, explain what, what the... Yeah, what the what, yeah, what is the problem with the building? Uh, it's actually more than 120 years. It's okay. actually 140 years now. Uh, it was uh, built by in around 1879 to 1880s after the Great Fire in Central. Uh, the building was uh, graded Grade 1 in 2017, and then URA uh, promised to conserve the entire building. Uh, however, uh, UI, after URA purchased the building in uh, 2009, it was left uh, unattended for uh, after its vacancy, uh, which will, uh, which contributed to its deterioration, and um, a massive uh, extent of removal happened in uh, last year and this year. Um, so uh, most of this internal structure has been uh, removed uh, to do uh, structural strengthening works, uh, including the roof the roof timber purlins and the floor joists, the floorboards and the hydraulic uh, cement tiles, and also the timber staircases uh, inside the building. All of this have been uh, temporarily removed uh, into a storage. And then uh, UI also added a, a external belt, which is a steel plate uh, cast with a concrete cover on the facade, uh, which is relatively easy to put on, but not so easy to take out, I think. Hugh's asking what's wrong with it. I'm going to ask, what's so great about it? I mean, I walk up and down Wellington Street like every day for the past 20 years, and I was like, the Wing Wu what? I had to go look up the address, and you know, even when I was looking at pictures of it, I'm like, I can't remember. Like, I'm sure I've walked by it literally a thousand times, um, but never caught my attention. Why why is this building special? Uh, That, uh, because... uh, this building uh, is actually the only surviving first generation of tenement house or it's called Tong Lao in Hong Kong. Mm. Uh, it has uh, Cantonese uh, green and grey brick walls as its uh, low-bearing low walls and then um, uh, its floor it, uh, it 
is uh, made up of timber joints supporting by the uh, walls. Uh, it's actually very rare in Hong Kong. Hmm. And you're the you're the, the spokesperson for the Wing Wu Concern Group. Um, yes. Why is why is this building in particular so important to you? And how big is the concern group? Uh, well, initially the concern group was initiated by me myself, and later there were a number of people are uh, joined uh, to me that uh, I actually uh, accidentally discovered this building in around 2016, and then. I wrote to AMO and NAB to uh, demonstrate its historic uh, significance and architectural significance to them. And then after all kinds of disworks and then uh, talking with the government uh, departments, uh, it was then put to AAB and get a grade one uh, status. Mm. And are you an architect or urban planner? Did you grow up in the neighborhood and it was part of your childhood? What is like of all the possible heritage buildings in Hong Kong to spend your time on? Why this one? Uh, well, actually, I live nearby the market of uh, Graham Street. Uh, it's a very living market and wing wall as a uh, uh, very at a corner building is very uh, significant as a landmark to that neighborhood, actually. Now, did you go into the grocery store when you were a child? Was it part of your, your growing up in childhood? Uh, no, I was too, too young then. <laughs> is, is, is the plan in the end to just kind of keep the shell of it? Uh, is it salvageable, the whole structure, or will they just keep the facade? Uh, to my knowledge, that uh, UI promised to reinstate uh, part of the structure inside, but that is not uh, clear now because they're still examining the uh, internal components and they are they cannot give me a statistic uh how how many percentage can be uh, reinstated back to the building but that would be the next step i will uh, keep asking them and and to let them tell us what is the latest update on this and who did the ura buy the building off of who who owned it before the ura took over uh i'm not quite sure about that but it should be a private uh, owner Mm, okay. It's very interesting that you drew attention to it. So you kind of spotted it because it's kind of unremarkable, isn't it? As you say, like you, I said, I've walked by it twenty years. I've and know, I, I, I'll walk I guess, by it twice today, probably. I guess um, lots of people had not really kind of noticed this building or appreciated its value at all. No. Hmm. no so one man, uh, one man can make a difference. <laughs> Check two. Thank you very much indeed for joining us this morning, conservationist and spokesperson from the Wingwu Concern Group, Christopher DeWall, Thank you very much indeed for joining us, managing editor of Zalima City Life magazine, which I do recommend you check out uh, online. It's very interesting about uh, cultural issues, uh, all kinds of things uh, in, in Hong Kong. Uh, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Andrew, many thanks to you. My pleasure, Hugh. That's it for another week. Uh, leaving you now with the weather. It's going to be mainly cloudy with a few showers. Once again, isolated thunderstorms around this morning. There's a thunderstorm warning. Uh, effective until at least 10.15 this morning. Hot with sunny intervals during the day. 28 degrees now. Relative humidity is now at 83%. Hi, I'm Lazy Lion. To fight this pandemic, don't hold gatherings or join large-scale activities. Event organizers should adopt contingency measures to postpone or cancel events or temporarily close facilities. The public should avoid crowded places as far as possible. Don't host or join gatherings with family and friends. Find an open space to stretch. Social distancing can help prevent the spread of COVID-19. These are the tips for you and me to prevent COVID-19. 9.32, the news now with Samantha Butler.
The chairman of the Lang Kwai Fong Group, Alan Zeman, says if coronavirus case numbers continue to decrease, authorities will allow bars to reopen on September the 18th after a two-month closure. He says if they can reopen next Friday, he also hopes the dining-in ban, which starts at 10pm, will be moved later until midnight. Microsoft says it's detected and thwarted a series of cyber attacks from China, Russia and Iran, which have targeted November's U.S. presidential election. A senior Microsoft official said there'd be no sign of attacks on the voting infrastructure itself. And President Trump says his Secretary of State Mike Pompeo will attend the Afghan peace negotiations taking place in Qatar tomorrow. The Taliban agreed to participate after Afghan government officials sent a final group of six Taliban prisoners to the Qatari capital Doha, fulfilling the preconditions for dialogue. I'll have more news at 10 o'clock. Stand by for the brew. Uh, sociology prof from the University of Set and Costume Design, great interpreter of Beethoven. And by oh so shy, quiet, and retiring doggy council co founder of Rockefeller Records. Hello. This is really for adults, it's not really for kids. Yeah, well, it's fun, you know. Hello. The sign of what's happening behind the lift. Good morning. In depth interviews and also observations. Absolutely no way. On your radio and live online, this is The Morning Brew. Good morning to you. Welcome to Friday Morning Brew with me, Phil Whelan. Nice, easy one today. Going to crank out some tunes, 10 to 11. But after 11, Danny Hicks will be with me for this week's Sports and All. US Open Tennis. New Premier League football season starting this weekend. Of course, anything else you want to talk about, because we will be on Facebook Live, and Danny loves getting your comments. After 12, movies with our critic James Marsh. Join him and Danny on Facebook Live with your comments and undoubtedly a tribute to the late, great Diana Rigg. After 12 today.